Hello, Cachimbonas. Welcome to season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the Arizona borderlands. This is a special episode because I am unlocking a previously patron-only episode. And this is something that I want to do more because historically the Patreon has had between 20 and 30 members who, by the way, are my ride or dies forever. But this content deserves to see the light of day and thousands of listeners who tune into the public feed. It's just too good to let sit on the Patreon only page. On this episode, I interviewed a treasured guest and friend of the podcast, deportation defense lawyer slash immigrants rights lawyer, Jehan Lainer Romero, to discuss the SCOTUS ruling in Senenning versus Smith. We talked about SCOTUS's characterization of Ninth Circuit, quote, out of bounds behavior, expressed gratitude that SCOTUS punted on the First Amendment analysis and criticized the majority opinions of as highlighting the very behavior that SCOTUS was criticizing the Ninth Circuit for engaging in. And just wanted to clear up that I misspoke when stating the date of the decision. It was decided on May 7th, 2020. To best understand this episode, it's best to listen to the first two parts of the episode, which I will link in the show notes. That's also where you'll see the link to become a patron. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have Jehan talk about SCOTUS and Anning Smith opinion that was decided on May 7th. Jehan and I did a primer for oral arguments. We broke down what happened at oral arguments. And this is the third part of that series where we're talking about the opinion itself and We're not going to recount the facts again, so I recommend that you go back to that first episode so that you can follow along for this third portion. Thanks, Yvette. Thanks for having me back here. As background, Ginsburg wrote the opinion, and it was argued on February 25th, and then, as I said, it was decided May 27th. The crux of Ginsburg's argument was that the Ninth Circuit's opinion was a drastic departure from the party presentation principle, which essentially is that the parties themselves should frame the issues at hand. And it's not the judge's role to be like, oh, well, what about this argument? It's up to the parties themselves to frame the facts and to bring the issues that they see are at issue with the facts. So as a general rule, she wrote, our system is designed around the premise that parties represented by competent counsel know what is best for them and are responsible for advancing the facts and arguments entitling them to relief. She was actually quoting from a Scalia concurrence. She goes on to say, in short, courts are essentially passive instruments of government. They do not or should not sally forth each day looking for wrongs to Right. <laughs> That's devil. Oh, yeah. It's exactly like what the Ninth Circuit's doing. They wait for cases to come to them. And when cases arise, courts normally decide only questions presented by the parties. I would summarize this argument as the courts will save you, bitch. 
She's just saying that the Ninth Circuit decided an issue that wasn't presented by the parties. And this was a unanimous court decision. Wild, yes. That, yeah, with a concurrence from Thomas, which we'll talk about later. So the court ended up rejecting Stunning Smith's constitutional arguments reasoning that she was prosecuted not for filing clients' applications, which is kind of what people were really scared about, that this statute would criminalize essentially being an immigration lawyer. But no, the court held that that's not what she was prosecuted for. She was prosecuted for falsely representing to non-citizens that her efforts, which she got a lot of money for, would enable them to gain lawful status. Do you think that that argument makes sense? So I think, like you said, Ginsburg, the court wanted to resolve this without reaching the merits, it looks like. So good job to Amicus, as we talked about earlier, for really showing what was at stake here. Mm -hmm. I think Ginsburg did have to, to make this argument about the conduct, really about what she did, and say that it was this conduct of fraudulently, illegally charging people money for something that she knew that she couldn't do and was basically lying to these clients. Mm-hmm. But to your question about, does this make sense on the facts of the case? And I think I talked about this either in the first, probably the first episode, was that there was other charges that were talking about this part, about this fraud part. And so she was convicted of those. And specifically what was going up to the court on 8 USC 1324, this part of 1324 that, that went up to the court was talking about inducing. So I think mm-hmm. it makes sense as far as like Ginsburg trying to write an opinion that makes sense. It doesn't make sense for the way that this was briefed up to the Supreme Court because this was already covered in other charges. This conduct part was already covered in other charges. Yeah, I feel like the opinion just begs the question, well, so then why does this provision need to exist in the first place if it is essentially just covered by fraud criminal statutes? Mm-hmm. And yeah. To be honest, given this court makeup that we have right now, I'm happy with how this opinion looks. <laughs> I mean, with the exception of Thomas's concurrence, but I'm happy that the Supreme Court is punting on this right now and throwing it back down, but it's likely going to come up again. And like we, we've talked about in the first two podcasts, this is an issue that the government wanted to appeal and the government asked for certiorari on. And everything that the government had briefed up was dealing with this inducing, using your language to induce somebody to remain in the country without papers. So, so yeah, so I agree with you that it doesn't really make sense in the way that it was briefed up to the court and the way that she answered it or that everyone answered it here. But happy with the outcome compared to where it could have gone. I just think it's a bit strange that she characterized the Ninth Circuit's judges as being activisty and trying to take advantage of this case before them to rule on an issue that wasn't precisely presented. Yeah, that makes sense why she called it out more. Yeah, uh yeah, yes. She's really trying to make it seem like the Ninth Circuit panel was out of bounds, overstepping, engaging in really out there behavior when I would argue that that was how you could categorize Mm -hmm. the prosecutors in this case. We've said so many times that the conduct that she was criminalized for is already covered by other statutes. And the government has obviously really zealously tried to advocate for this provision remaining on the books. Mm -hmm. So we just have to question 
why it is that they're engaging in their activism. And I found it very strange that this woman who's like memes and is on every white woman's t-shirt as an inspiration really is siding with Trump prosecutors on this one. Yeah, I think this is another case where speaking about the government and the Trump prosecutors, like we've kind of called out in the first previous episodes, the government's arguments have been very worrisome in these cases at the district court. They did state that this would, this provision could be used to criminalize immigration lawyers. So they said that in the district court, they held pretty firm to that in the Ninth Circuit. And then in their briefing, they were also saying that there's some limiting language, but that this has been understood to be a broad power. And then it was finally just an oral argument that the government finally said that, well, yeah, there could be a limitation. This doesn't necessarily need to be applied in its full literal language. So I agree with you that the court kind of took what the government was representing last, at the very last um, resort at the oral argument stage, that they they do see some limits on it, but we don't know what the full scope of those limits are. And I think it would have been better if the Supreme Court had struck down the law as unconstitutional. And there's so many other provisions of the criminal code that would criminalize this conduct and that would punish people for this type of conduct. So this actual provision, as it's literally written, as everybody acknowledges, even in oral argument, as it's literally written, is very problematic. So we still don't understand the precise scope of this. And we're just dealing with the government's promise that it is limited. But we know the government is trying to prosecute people for this. So, Yeah. yeah. I know that's why I felt like it was a little bit like gaslighting because it's like you are stepping out of bounds. You're taught you're completely out of left field with this theory. And it's like, no, this is a genuine concern because the lawyer admitted earlier on in the district court that this provision could be used to theoretically prosecute an immigration lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think a really good job, even in the amici that we're briefing at the Supreme Court, that really did bring to light these concerns and to light what we're all experiencing right now under this administration. Because I think it did push the court to whose side are you going to be on? And obviously they didn't, they took the easy way out here and they punted, but it could have been a lot worse. And I think it was really good that it was shown how far this law could extend. And Mm -hmm. that was made clear. Yeah, I definitely. And, you know, I think that was part of my goal in focusing on this case, because it's one of those things that happens a lot with criminalization of migration and border issues is that happens quietly. It's thrown under the rug and the only people who know about or are paying attention to it are people who are directly affected. And I don't want to get to the point where somebody is being prosecuted under this law for people to start paying attention to it and the possibilities that the government has already alluded to for prosecuting people for speech. Yeah. And I think we're going to get to this part in a second, but there was something else that Ginsburg said in her decision that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me <laughs> or that I thought was kind of a stretch. But she was saying it's, it's kind of the same sort of question that you asked that Ginsburg herself, I'm sorry, Sinead Smith herself didn't bring up this. She didn't bring up herself this problem with the way that the statute was written. Right, right. So she says that and then Nick Smith obviously did challenge the statute when she went on to appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ginsburg tries to make this distinction saying, 
the only parts that she challenged were the parts that affect her. Um, mm-hmm. So she challenged her conduct that she didn't encourage anybody to stay. Right. She said that it she wasn't on notice and Enig wasn't on notice because this was so vague. And she said that Seneneg's own speech was safeguarded by the First Amendment. And so Ginsburg is trying to make this decision that Seneneg only focused on herself and didn't focus on the overbroad language as applied to everyone else. And so she's trying to say that this is like a new thing that wasn't brought up by the parties. But I honestly think the part where Seneneg says that this is unconstitutionally vague in her own papers, I think is really getting at that issue. So I think it's really serious in line drawing that Ginsburg is trying to do, where she's saying that the panel just made up this argument because Sinenig was only arguing about her own conduct. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I thought that, to answer your question about whether or not this made sense, I was like, it's really been like really trying yeah. to draw line between these two things where I think it's more blurred than that. And I don't think it's necessarily overreaching we're going to talk about this, I think, as it applies to the Supreme Court, because I really think it's ironic what the Supreme Court did. But I've had the experience with judges in federal court where they do ask us to brief issues that haven't come up before. They ask me questions in oral argument about mm-hmm. stuff we haven't talked about ever before. Ask for briefing right. and after oral argument about issues that neither of the parties have brought up. So I think that's putting yeah. all other courts in a weird situation after this opinion. Yeah, definitely. So I think that this leads us into talking about the addendum to her opinion, mm-hmm. which I found very strange mm-hmm. because it completely contradicted her own argument because she essentially had to say, well, so just to backtrack a little bit, you know, even though we're calling out this outrageous behavior, here are some examples where courts have asked for briefing about issues that weren't presented. And mm-hmm. it's just, it. What do you think about that? Oh my gosh, this is where I think I have the most thoughts because obviously, like I said, I think the court was asking for an exit and I'm okay that they chose this exit out of anything they could have done. But one thing I think is really ironic about this is this is exactly what the Supreme Court is doing because neither the government nor Sinanig brought up a procedural concern about what the Ninth Circuit did. I think Mm -hmm. there's some language in the government brief, something to the effect of, it's something short, it's something like, the Ninth Circuit departed from like standard course or something, but they don't really go into it. They don't, the government doesn't cite any authority to say that this is wrong. So what the Supreme Court is actually doing is actually exactly what they told the Ninth Circuit not to do, which is like reach around and look for an issue and hunt for something that they can change it on. Yeah. Um, so and the addendum is literally listing instances in which the Supreme Court has done this and they bring up Jennings versus Rodriguez which I bring up because I always thought that was yeah. a very shitty opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I know that too, that that's listed <laughs> twice. Two examples from Jennings are listed in her addendum. Right. The Supreme Court kind of reaching around and looking for an issue. Right. So I'm just like, well, then let's revisit Jennings then <laughs> because clearly there were issues with how that was decided. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, so yeah, I just, I thought that was really ironic that that the Supreme Court is actually doing the same thing that they're telling the Ninth Circuit not to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I'm looking back at at my notes. And so, yeah, this didn't come up. Basically, the government had said the Ninth Circuit had deviated from the normal course of business in their certiorari petition, but that was the last time, like, it kind of came up. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think this leaves a lot of courts in a lot of weird spots. 
And it makes me wonder, like, okay, why is the Supreme Court doing this? Maybe they're more of like a supervisory authority than other courts, but it would have been really nice to explain this because I think mm-hmm. this calls into question a lot of practice in federal courts. And I mean, personally, as a, like, a lawyer that practices in federal courts, I don't love it when the judges come up with new issues that we haven't been working on. <laughs> I mean, when it benefits... Maybe this practice should be curbed. Yeah, so when it's, <laughs> when it's helpful to your case, it's great. And you're like, yes, judge, thank you. And so I get what Ginsburg was saying. Like, of course, Sinanik pulled right, those arguments, right. but... But, like, I don't love it when the judges do that either. So, like, as a practitioner, yes, it would be cleaner. And one thing I did appreciate about Ginsburg was that she talked about how this shouldn't apply to pro se people. Pro se means just that you're unrepresented. And there is, she kind of said that there is a lot of leeway. There should be a lot of leeway for judges to help out with the issues for people that are unrepresented. Right. As we know, there's, like, an access to justice problem. I also feel the same way that I think should be help for pro se litigants, but I don't think that the court gave good guidance to other federal courts about what they're supposed to do under these circumstances. I just think it's kind of a disingenuous argument Mm -hmm. to be like, yeah, to be like, you know, the lawyer made the argument just because the Ninth Circuit panel suggested it. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you know, like, oh, because she just wanted to sway the judge in her favor. But it's kind of like, isn't that Mm -hmm. literally legal advocacy? (laughs) And if you can tell, like, a judge is liking one of your arguments, like, you lean oh, into God. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I mean, let's not even get into the power dynamics that are super problematic where people also befriend judges and, like, shoot the shoot with them about baseball. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of really problematic ways in which judges are are influencing lawyers and the arguments that they make. But I think it was disingenuous for her to point to this and make it seem as if that's something that's singularly unique about the legal profession when it's not. Yeah, and I agree with you. The addendum, the Jennings issues also caught my eye because I think she, I think, I believe, I should look at the case again really quick, but I believe she brought up two examples from Jennings and her kind of disclaimer of why it was different for the Supreme Court to pull these issues was because the parties had raised it in some form. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think this still goes back to my first thing. I think that even though Sinenik was talking about her own conduct, she raised these issues too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the way that Sinenik raised them was super closely linked to the way they got brought up at the Supreme Court. So yeah, I think it's it's really muddied for federal courts to decide how they're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of, if I'm trying to use it as a practitioner, I think it kind of creates a shield if the court is doing something wrong that I could use, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Or not wrong, but is maybe trying to do something that is hurting my case. Can you explain what Jennings is really quickly? Because we've mentioned it, but people probably or might not know the facts and what was that issue there? Yeah, definitely. Jennings was a case and the issue that was going up to the Supreme Court was whether or not people could get bond hearings if they were in what's known as prolonged detention or more than six months. So non-citizens in immigration, which is civil detention, if they could get bond hearings after they've been in custody for over six months. And there's certain, the way that DHS categorizes people that are detained, they put it under different statutes, under different laws. And there's certain categories of like when you can get a bond hearing. So some people supposedly are in mandatory detention, aren't allowed. And they say supposedly just, you can also argue 
about do you belong in mandatory detention? Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of arguments that can happen during that. So for the mandatory detention folks, oftentimes it's that they've committed a criminal offense that has put them into immigration custody. And then there's like mandatory detention for having a prior deportation, which could even include just those expedited at the border. You got turned around by a really effed up mm-hmm. um, CBP officer or, or just regular, you know, whatever, like really old deportation. You would be stuck in there without a bond hearing. Also, asylum seekers usually don't get bond hearings. If, even if they presented themselves at the border, claimed asylum, had a had past credible fear interviews saying that they had a, a very valid and credible fear. And then even if you did qualify at some point for an initial bond hearing, if you lost, because unfortunately most jurisdictions actually put the burden on the non-citizen to prove why they should get out. And I have a lot of feelings about this, but in no other circumstance would you, the person that is being detained, need to have the burden to get your liberty, even in in criminal custody or other civil mm-hmm. commitments, it's on the government. Which is really important because it's actually important. they should be afforded yeah. more rights than exactly. someone going through a criminal process. So it's exactly. very absurd. It's super absurd. Of- yeah. It's so, so important. So even if you did get an initial bond hearing, meaning that like within the first couple of weeks that you're detained, you were allowed to go in front of a judge and ask for your release. By the way, of course, you don't, you're not guaranteed a lawyer in this proceeding where it's your liberty at stake. But yeah, pretend you did get that chance to go in front of a judge in, you know, not your language. You don't have any legal skills and you lost that hearing. You don't get another bond hearing unless you can show that circumstances have materially changed, which is like super hard to show. And again, the burden's still on you, not on the government. So anyways, there's all kinds of people that are left in immigration detention for over six months. On top of this, the first time that the Supreme Court, I may not be able to say first time, but one of the more famous times that the Supreme Court was looking at prolonged detention was the DeMora v. Kim case. And Mm -hmm. in that case, I've talked about this on your podcast before too, possibly in a lit review, but in that case, (laughs) the government lied. Maybe maybe it was during this case too, probably episode one, but during DeMora v. Kim, the government lied and said that, oh, you know, most attentions are brief and don't go over three months, which is is absolutely a lie. And I think it was Mm -hmm. the Solicitor General or someone from the DOJ had to actually write the Supreme Court and tell them that was a mistake. Anyway, sorry, lots of background. But but Jennings, the Ninth Circuit, the Second Circuit, and a couple other circuits started being like, this is wild, Supreme, like, this is wild. The Supreme Court has already said that six months in detention is a prolonged period of time. And that's constitutionally problematic. So the Supreme Court, or sorry, the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit in trying to avoid, I say, I mentioned the Second Circuit because they had the Laura case and that was a twin case going up with Jennings from the Ninth Circuit. And so the Ninth Circuit using the canon of constitutional avoidance with, which for those of you not in law school, there's supposed to be standardized ways that judges are supposed to look at laws. So that they're not just going around like willy-nilly, just interpreting anything the way they want. I know they kind of do that anyway. At least try to have doctrines yeah. about the way that they're doing it. And so That's like the-, the grain of truth behind the framing of RBG's opinion. It's like, yeah. it's true that judges aren't supposed to engage in policymaking. They set the constitutional floor. They set the constitutional minimum. And so as such, when they're presented with an issue, they're supposed to rule as conservatively as possible mm-hmm. on the narrowest grounds possible. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the doctrine that the Ninth Circuit used to get 
periodic bond hearings. So bond hearings every six months, which six months in detention is a very long time. But yeah, the doctrine that they used was called the canon of statutory avoidance or sorry, constitutional avoidance, which is basically like you judges don't try to interpret the constitution when you're looking at a law unless you absolutely have to. And so the Ninth Circuit in avoiding that and t- t- um, just believed that, of course, Congress didn't mean to do something unconstitutional. So we're obviously going to grant six month bond hearings to these folks. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how many years we had it, maybe four or five years. Um, the Ninth Circuit four. had periodic yeah. bond hearing. And then the Second Circuit had it for about the same time. And yeah, it was just like a modicum Those were the days. of due process. It was a modicum of due process. It's not even because. It, yeah, it was it's yeah. Still bad. It's still really bad to be detained for six months and a lot of damage can be done before that. So, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, very bad opinion. What happened in the Supreme Court and why Jenny Ginsburg cites Jennings in her addendum a couple of times is that the issues have been fully briefed and they had an oral argument, correct? They had already had oral argument before the Supreme Court like pushed it further and asked everybody to rebrief and come back, right? I think mm-hmm. that's... Yeah, so in Jennings, they they did do this as well, where they asked all the lawyers to talk about a whole set of issues all over again. This is a monumental opinion that affected so many people. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a bunch also a bunch in there that we're still arguing about that's like separate from the main issues in the case. Right. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for that background. So I wanted to I get into... <laughs> I could go on and on about that case. <laughs> no, I think it's super, super helpful background. So I wanted to get back into talking about Stunning Smith and to talk about Thomas's concurrence because this was an, a unanimous opinion, but he went out of his way to write a concurrence and to give his thoughts on how strongly he felt about this supposed judicial activism. Wanted to ask what your reactions were to his concurrence and also if he could just kind of lay out what his main arguments were. Yeah, so I just, I I rolled his concurrence as I do many of the things that he writes. And it was just, yeah. So a lot of thoughts on that. But his basic argument was he wanted to attack the overbreath doctrine. So another doctrine that Yvette and I kind of talked about in the first episode, I believe, when we were discussing just like what were the constitutional arguments about the First Amendment. So the the way that he describes this is like the, Courts are creating this whole overbreath doctrine that doesn't have any roots in in the Constitution or in laws or anything. Or like in that. like the because Thomas is an originalist, so his issue is that the framers, like Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. and like George Washington and Madison, hadn't contemplated this aspect of the jurisprudence when they wrote the First Amendment. And so, like, he he talks about how this is a judicially made doctrine that comes from the 20th century. Right. Yeah, he he also calls it out as saying that the overbreath doctrine is recent. Like, it's not from common law. We didn't get this from England. Of course, we didn't get it from England. Like, this is from the First Amendment, which we did. Anyway, (laughs) but, but so, like, he's arguing that we are making, that judges recently have made the First Amendment really special and that they created this overbreath doctrine, which, as we said, was if you can look at a law and it would criminalize or punish conduct that would be First Amendment protected speech, then that statute, that law is unconstitutional. 
And the funny thing, the thing I thought was funny was he was like, I've joined opinions like that. And like when it suits him, he's fine with the overbreath doctrine. And a lot of conservative folks like actually use the use the First Amendment shields a lot. So Yeah, he he said that the way that he frames it is that yes, I previously joined the court in applying this doctrine, but this case has now this case of time since has made him develop doubts about the origins and application of the doctrine. Yeah. And I think the first amendment, I think is a great amendment, obviously, but I think like the U S <laughs> there's times when, yeah, there's, there's times when the U S sometimes I think like it basically it also is a home for hate speech and that's the way that yeah. it used as a shield. Yes. So, there's so like, organizations literally dedicated to ensuring that people can do hate speech. Right, exactly. So, so, like, I have a complicated, mm-hmm. I have a lot of complicated thoughts about, about the way that the overbreath doctrine has been applied. Mm-hmm. So my fight isn't really here with, with, like, how folks are applying the overbreath doctrine in the First Amendment. The thing that sort of concerns me, and this is very immigration specific, is that not in not regards to the First Amendment at all, but in immigration law, we have this tool called the categorical approach because most people that are convicted of criminal offenses are convicted by states. But then the Immigration Nationality Act is written by the federal government. And so the types of offenses that the INA says make you deportable, they need to compare that to what you were convicted of out of state court. And so we use overbreath in our work a lot to be like Mm -hmm. this state California criminalizes all these things that the federal government doesn't criminalize when they think about I'm just going to use an example a burglary Mm -hmm. like the California criminal code you could be convicted of like all these types of burglaries that you wouldn't actually be convicted of under the federal government so this shouldn't count for this category under the INA and so I'm, I'm only bringing that up because there's been some recent bad BIA decisions or issues where the BIA is asking for amicus briefing on the categorical approach. And I they would always love nothing more than to weaken it. And mm-hmm. why the categorical approach especially is used in immigration court is because these aren't criminal court judges. These aren't judges. There's no rules of evidence in immigration court. So like the government will <laughs> literally no the government will come in and lie about the record, make up well, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I mean just very basic things that you we think are present in the American legal system just don't exist at all in immigration court. Like things that I think a lot of people would think are foundational to this legal system, like the right to confront your accuser, right? On I-213s, border patrol agents who do interviews at the border, those statements are taken as true and they're used to invalidate people's asylum claims. Like Mm -hmm. the border patrol agent will will allegedly write, oh, this person just came here to work. And this person's saying, no, Oh, I have an asylum claim, and I yeah, that is and like a lie. Same document, they like spelled this person's name wrong. Like, <laughs> it's like you know, like there's a bunch yeah. of other mistakes, but like we're gonna yeah, let's this one not get into detail about how border patrol. But like, yeah, the point <laughs> being that yeah, the point being that there's basically the categorical approach again provides like this basic ass due process in immigration court where they're trying. DOJ right now, DHS would love nothing more than to get to conduct full-on retrials of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. without any like due process protections. And so yeah. I just bring this up because I'm like, he didn't say this in the opinion, and I hope they keep reading things narrowly, but um, it just got me concerned about application of overbreath and what Thomas 
would want to do eventually. It's a different, in different contexts, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you think that that could be applied though to just being approach? Yeah. Cause he was kind of saying, so the way that I was reading his concurrence, so he's talking about that judges are, are using the overbreath doctrine to come up with the different scenarios. That's obviously not the conduct that the legislature was trying to criminalize or trying to punish. Mm-hmm. So he's just saying like, lawyers come in here and like anybody could think of any kind of scenario that could, <laughs> that could be protected speech, right? And that's an, often an argument that they make against the categorical approach. Like, oh, you're just coming up with some. And there's a lot of protections to the categorical approach. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of you have to show that there's a probability of this. You can do that. Right. Different, different stuff. Um, but yeah, it was Which just like. mean that somebody was actually charged in that way? That yeah, something that was overbroad. Yes, exactly. So it was just maybe triggering for me. Probably it's not going to be applied in other cases, but to me it was triggering to hear this thing that is often argued in immigration contexts. Yeah. Well, Jayhan, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to talk about this decision. I think, like you said, the court punted. Mm-hmm. It could have gone a lot worse. We could be seeing prosecutions of immigration lawyers left and right right now. It's not what's happening at this very moment. And um, the Supreme Court punted and remanded it back down. Also, at the same time, I think it was really important to break down the problematic aspects of the framing of this, especially because this was a unanimous opinion. And Thomas did go on this rant about the overbreath and vagueness doctrine and how it's judicial policymaking. And there are red flags that exist in this opinion, even though it didn't wreak havoc on our lives. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I agree. I think a lot of my fear was taken away at oral arguments based on how the judges were talking about it, but I still didn't know that they were going to do this. And I'm glad that, yeah, bringing up the problematic aspects and the the things that were kind of disappointing to read out of this. For sure. Is there anything that you feel like we didn't cover before we end the segment? Um, No. I think, yeah, I think we got out of everything in my notes. So yeah, thanks for having me back again. And now more than ever, hoping that everyone's doing all right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you're staying home and staying healthy and drinking water. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bye, Jihan. Bye. Take care. I implore you to please still support the Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can get access to dozens more episodes like these and also make this podcasting endeavor sustainable for me. It's long been my dream to make podcasting and Radio Cachimbona my full-time job, and I do still dream of that. And the patron is really the only viable vehicle for that right now because I have refrained from soliciting advertisements or going down that route because I think it cheapens the content and it's sort of contradiction that feels insurmountable given the anti-capitalist values of this podcast. That's my pitch. Please, please, please join the Patreon if you can support through a monthly subscription. It 
really, really, really would mean the world to me and the patrons who currently support me, I hope know that they are my favorite people, <laughs> truly. If you can't support monetarily right now, which I totally understand, the best way to support the podcast is to give a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks so much to all those who have already given their rating and review. I really, really appreciate it. You can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to continue the conversations that are started on the podcast and just to follow along. Bye, Cachimbonas!